Welcome, everybody, to our Sunday morning chat, our Zoom call for Ramana Maharshi and once a month on Sundays, Michael. Michael James joins us live from London. Yeah. Uh, welcome, Michael. And I want to just point out that uh, we do have increasing numbers of people who are joining us who see your video talk to us in San Diego mm. on YouTube. And uh, I've been giving out our email address in case they want to write for a chance for them to join us live on the first Sundays. And I'll do it right now for anybody else who sees this on, on tape. Who knows who sees it from around the world, but it's always interesting to find out. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday or any Sunday, not just when Michael's here, email uh, a note to me at ted at newsguy55 at aol.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-I. Five five at aol.com and I'll send you. I'll put you on the mailing list. Is what I'll do. Michael, thank you for joining us. And um, should I begin by asking the first question? That, uh, yes, yes, please. Oh, okay. This is from Harshita. I don't see Harshita here right now. I hope she joins us. Uh, she has two questions combined together because they're on the same point. Could you please explain the teachings of self inquiry and what to focus on or observe during the process of self inquiry? She's new to Ramana. She's new to this line of suit. And I think to a certain extent, that's why she's asking a question that usually comes at the beginning of uh, the, this pursuit. As a beginner, she says, artificial or forced to do the inquiry. Self-inquiry does not seem natural. The questioning and the inquiry process, she specifies. I feel like all the answers that come to me result from my listening to Bhagavan's teachings. Well, that's something I think many of us share in common. So take it away, Michael. How do you respond to her? Okay. Um, what we have to focus on or observe during the, in order to investigate ourselves, in order to investigate what we actually are, we need to focus our attention on ourselves. But in order to focus our attention on ourself, we first need to understand what we mean by ourself. This is where um, a, a, a comprehensive understanding of Bhagavan's teachings is a necessary starting point. Because now what we experience as ourself is this, uh, what is called a bundle of five sheaves. The five sheaves are, and Bhagavan refers to this bundle of five sheaves collectively as body. But what the, what the five sheaves that constitute this body are is firstly the physical body. Secondly, the prana or life that animates this physical body. In other words, all the physiological processes, the breathing and other physiological processes going on in this body. Then the mind, the intellect and the will. Though we can distinguish these five, we experience them collectively as one unit, as one person that we take ourselves to be. So we are not any of these five um, sheaths. What, we are not any object. We are not any phenomenon. We are not anything that appears and disappears. We are that in, in whose view everything appears, else appears and disappears. So we 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 are not we are not trying to attend to any object. We're trying to attend to ourselves. Now we seem to be the subject, but 
the subject is ego, but we are trying to focus even deeper. What underlies this subject is the fundamental awareness of our own being, I am. That is what we actually are. That, that fundamental awareness, I am, that is what we actually are. That is what we need to focus our attention on. Um, people are, when people hear the term I am, they even that they begin to subtly objectify in their mind. People say, how to know whether I'm focusing on the I am, as if the I am was an object. The, what I am means is I exist. So uh, I am refers to our own existence, our own being. So it is, it is our mere being, this fundamental awareness that we have of our own being. This is what we need to focus on because this is what we actually are. Um, so that's why we, we cannot know ourselves merely by understanding the philosophy. But in order to investigate ourselves, we at least need to have a, a basic understanding of this philosophy. But we, why are we not this body or this mind or intellect or will or any of these things? Because these things appear and disappear. Now we experience ourselves as this body. But this body cannot be what we actually are because in sleep, sorry, in dream, we experience ourselves as a body. But the body we experience as ourselves in dream is not this body. If a body in dream is injured, when we wake up, this body has no injury. So we, since we experience ourselves in dream without experiencing this body as ourself, this body cannot be what we actually are. And since we now experience ourselves without experiencing that dream body as ourself, that dream body cannot, cannot be what we actually are. So what about this mind? The mind seems to be the same mind in both waking and dream. So is the mind what we are? Even that cannot be so because this mind, intellect and will, which we collectively can call as mind, appears in waking and dream and disappears in sleep. But though the mind disappears in sleep, we remain there and we, we are aware that we exist in sleep, even though we are aware of nothing else. That is generally uh, people who haven't thought about this deeply. People think of sleep as a state of, uh, of non-awareness or unconsciousness. We're not, we, don't, we think, I'm not aware of anything in sleep. Yes, it's true. We are not aware of anything in sleep. That is, we are not aware of any phenomena in sleep. But we are aware of being in a state in which we are aware of nothing. Because if, if, if we were totally unaware in sleep, we would only be aware of two states, waking and dream. We would not be aware of another state because we wouldn't exist. In, I mean, we'd be completely absent in that state. But the fact is, we're aware of three states. Two of those states, in two of those states, waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. And consequently, we're aware of other things. In sleep, we are not aware of ourselves as I am this body. And consequently, we are not aware of anything else. But we are aware of being in that state in which we are not aware of anything. That is, we don't think when we're asleep, I'm in a state in which I'm not aware of anything. But we're aware of just being without being aware of anything else. And this is what, when we wake up, we re recollect, yes, I was asleep. What do we mean when we say I was asleep? I was in a state where I wasn't aware of anything. 
but we're aware that we were in that state in which we weren't aware of anything. So we were not, we were not aware of any phenomena. So there was neither subject nor object in sleep. But our own being, our own fundamental awareness, I am, continued to shine there. So that is why, that is what we actually are. Because the only thing that we're aware of in all three states is our own being, our own existence, I am. So that is the only thing that we actually are. Because we can experience our being in the absence of all these adjuncts, all these five she's that we now take ourselves to be, these cannot be what we actually are. So by simple logical uh, analysis and thinking deeply about this, we can understand that we are not any object. So what we are to investigate is ourself. Since we ourselves exist in all three states, we are to investigate, what we are to investigate is not anything that appears only in waking and dream and not in sleep. So the one underlying reality is this fundamental awareness I am. Bhagavan sometimes used to illustrate this with an, an analogy. This fundamental awareness I am is like the screen in a cinema. When we go to a cinema, there are two states of the screen. There's one, one state, there are pictures projected on the screen. Another state, there are no pictures projected on the screen. The state in which the pictures are projected on the screen, that is analogous to waking and dream. The state in which no pictures are projected on the screen is analogous to sleep. When we go to a cinema, we go there not to see the screen. We go there to see some interesting movie. And because we are very interested in that movie, though we spend three hours sitting there looking at the screen, we overlook the screen, so to speak. That is, we're always seeing the screen, but it's almost like we don't notice that we're seeing it because we are noticing only the pictures that appear on the screen. And most pictures are just, most pictures are insubstantial. If, if you've got a raging fire projected on the screen, the screen isn't burnt. If you've got a flood or an ocean storm, the screen doesn't get wet. So these pictures are a superficial appearance. What we're actually looking at is only the screen. But we, because we're more interested in the pictures, but are telling us a story, we overlook the screen and see the pic and, and notice only the picture. That is the state we're in now. We are always aware I am, but we're overlooking this fundamental awareness I am because we're more interested in all the things that are happening in the, in, uh, the little life we are living in this world, uh, our problems we face, the problems we face at work, the problems we face at home, uh, the, the joys and sorrows of this life, and maybe politics or sports. Or, so many things are there that are interesting us, or maybe we're interested in philosophy or science, or so many things are there that may interest us. But the one thing we are constantly overlooking, though we're always aware, we're always aware I am, but we overlook this. We, we take it for granted, so to speak. So we are always aware I am, but because we are generally more interested in other things, we are negligently aware I am. That is, we're aware I am, but we neglect this awareness because we're more interested in other things. So self-investigation is simply being attentively aware I am. It, we, it, we're not... There's nothing new that we are attending to. We are attending to that which is ever-present. 
So it is the attentiveness is the key to this uh, in this practice. So what we need to focus on or observe is our self, our own being, our own existence. I am. That that is all. Um, that doesn't mean that we, some people take it, but we have to focus on the words I am. No, it's not the words I am we have to focus on. It's what the words I am refer to, which is our own being. So that is what we need to focus on. And then the question goes on. As a beginner, I find it artificial or forced to do the inquiry. It is not actually artificial. To attend to, that is, we take it as natural to be attending to all these other things. But attention to things other than ourselves exists only in waking and dream. It doesn't exist in sleep. So it's not natural to us. It's natural to ego. When we rise as ego, it's natural for ego to attend to other things. But our real nature is just to be aware of ourself. So that is... That is, though it's not, though this self-investigation is contrary to the nature of ego, which is constantly to look outwards, because this is looking inwards, it's looking back at ourselves, it is actually uh, our own real nature. So we are, we, in this process of self-investigation, we are, we are replacing this ego nature with our own real nature, what we always actually are. And then the person goes on to say, um, uh, uh, Hashita goes on to say, um, self-inquiry does not uh, seem natural, the questioning and the inquiry process. Here again, there's a, a clarification is needed. Self-inquiry doesn't mean questioning. Though Bhagavan, sometimes when he was expressing it, he, he put it in the form of questions like, who am I? To whom do these thoughts appear? To whom does all this appear? Uh, it's, it, it, it is not, he didn't tell us to question who am I or to question to whom does all this appear. He told us to investigate who am I, to investigate to whom all these things appear. The, the English term self-inquiry is a translation of the Sanskrit term Atmavichara. Vichara in this context means inquiry in the sense of investigation. That is, when we use the term inquire or inquiry in English, we use it in two distinct senses. Sometimes, that is, we, we can use the, uh, the, the verb inquire in the sense of to ask, to ask a question. In, um, when you meet him, please inquire about his health. We ask. Let me please ask about his health. Um, so that's one sense in which we use the term inquiry. We also use the term inquiry of inquiring into something. That means investigating. So it's in this sense of investigating that we should understand this term self-inquiry. That is why generally I translate Atmavichara and other similar terms that Bhagavan uses in Tamil as self-investigation. What we, are to, what we are doing is, we are not asking of who am I, we're investigating who am I. So, um, supposing Bhagavan uh, gives us a book and says to us, investigate what's written in this book. We don't sit there and, and ask ourselves, what is written in this book, what is written in this book? No, to investigate what is written in the book means we have to open up the book and look inside. So when Bhagavan says, investigate who am I, 
He doesn't mean that we should be asking ourselves a question, who am I? We should be looking within ourselves, looking back towards our fundamental awareness of being, I am, to see what we actually are. So we have to look at ourselves very carefully, so to speak, in order to see what we actually are. Of course, when we say look at or see, we're using these terms metaphorically because we're, we're not looking with our eyes or anything. It's a metaphorical way of saying it. We need to look deep within. We need to look at ourselves in order to see what we actually are. Seeing what we actually are means being aware of ourselves as we actually are. And being aware of ourselves as we actually are means just being as we actually are, because what we actually are is just pure awareness. So we can know ourselves only by being ourselves. So how to be ourselves? So long as we allow our attention to go outwards towards other things, we are rising and as ego and nourishing this ego. By attending to ourselves, we are thereby we are bringing about the subsidence of ego, because the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself. The first thing it attends to is its body, which it takes to be I, and then it begins attending to other things. So if we, instead of attending to anything other than ourselves, if we attend to ourselves alone, ego will subside. This is the great secret that Bhagavan has uh, revealed. This is the, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to other things and to subside by attending to itself. Bhagavan expresses this, well, I mean, this is something that Bhagavan uh, taught in so many ways in so many occasions, but he summarized this most um, most succinctly in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. In the last line of verse 25 of Uludunapadu, he describes ego as Uruvatra Pe Ahande. Uruvatra means formless. Pe means uh, a demon or a phantom. And um, Ahande means ego. So the formless demon ego. Why does he say this ego is formless? Because ego has no form of its own. Ego is not this body or this mind or any of these adjuncts, but ego cannot rise without identifying itself as these. So what is the nature of this ego is what he says in this verse. So he begins by saying, Urupatriunda uh, means grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri Nikum, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri Undu Mika Ongum, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu Urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So what he's, what he's um, implies by this is we cannot rise, stand, or flourish as ego without grasping form. Grasping form means since ego is a formless phantom, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. And since it's a formless phantom, how can it grasp anything? It hasn't got hands to grasp. So we grasp things by attending to them. So allowing our attention to go out towards things other than ourselves is, is what, uh, that is, as soon as we rise as ego, our attention begins to go outwards towards other things. And by continuing to attend to other things, we thereby stand. We, the ego is sustained. Not only that, by attending to other things, ego feeds itself and flourishes. Um, 
And if it leaves one thing, it will grasp another thing. This is the very nature of ego. Um, the first form ego grasps is a, for, is a body. That means a form of five sheaths, these five sheaths that I spoke about earlier. So we first identify ourselves as body, as I am this body consisting of these five sheaths. And we are consequently aware of other things. So we, uh, our attention then goes out and we're attending to so many things in this world. Or even when we, our mind is not going towards the world, it's it, within our mind we're thinking about the world. So it's still going outward. It's go, going, that is thought, even thoughts are things other than ourselves, because they appear and they disappear. So what we need to attend to is ourself alone. So what happens when we attend to ourself? He says very succinctly in one sentence, Tedinal otum pidicum. That means, literally, it means if sought, it takes flight. So, what does he mean by if sought? Who is to seek what? It, it, it's that is the, the way it's expressed in Tamil conveys more meaning than in English. In English, we say if sought, it's not clear either what is to doing the seeking or what is being sought. But in Tamil, in the context, if sought means it ego seeks itself. In other words, if it seeks its own reality, if it investigates what it what am I, if it seeks to know what it actually is, in other words, if it investigates its own being to see who am I, autumpidicum. Autumpidicum means it will take flight. It's a it's an idiomatic expression in Tamil, but means very much the same as in English, take flight. For those who aren't so familiar with English, when they hear the term take flight, they imagine a bird taking fl uh, flying. But actually, take flight means to flee, to run away. So when we, when we, when if we, if instead of allowing our attention to go out towards other things, if we turn our attention back towards ourselves, this ego will take flight. That means it will subside and eventually dissolve back into its source. What is the source of the ego? What is the source from which ego rises? Ego rises in waking and dream. So it must rise from that which exists when it doesn't exist. What exists in the absence of ego is only I am. So I am is shining in all three states. In waking and dream, from this I am, we rise as ego. Ego is the false awareness, I am this body, I am this person, I am Michael, I am Hashita, I am whoever. Um, so what we are investigating is that, that this ego is a, a, a conflation of two elements. The first element is that fundamental awareness, I am, our being. That is what is called satchit, being awareness. And the other element is this body of five sheaths. What we are investigating is what we actually are. So we're investigating the I am element of ego. In other words, we are investigating our own being. So when Bhagavan says if sought, that means if ego seeks its own reality, what it actually is, it will subside and dissolve back into its source. So um, this, it, this, this process need not involve any questioning. Some people find it useful at first to ask the question, who am I? But that asking the question, who am I, is useful only to the extent to which it turns our attention towards ourselves. We shouldn't be just repeating the word, the words, who am I, as if it was a mantra or something. It's, uh, that is, if, if, if we at all we 
think the words, who am I, we should use that thought, who am I, to turn our attention back towards ourselves. Who is this I we are seeking to know? So in other words, we turn our attention back towards ourselves. So this process is not a process of questioning, it's a process of investigating. And we can investigate what we are only by attending to ourselves. And finally, Hashita says in the final sentence, I feel all the answers that come to me result from my listening to Bhagavan's teachings. That is, if we take self-inquiry to be a questioning, we're looking for an answer. But this isn't a this isn't a question and answer process. This is an investigation. So um, there is no answer as such, or it metaphor. Metaphorically, we can say the answer is to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. That's not thinking I am Brahman or I am God or I am I I am pure awareness or I'm Satchitananda. That is not the. We need to investigate ourselves to see what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, we don't rise to think I am this or I am that. We don't even rise to think I am. Ah, now I'm self-realized. Anyone who says I am self-realized. Is clearly in ignorance because in the state of that is referred to in English as self-realization, that is the what is meant by that is the state in which ego is completely dissolved in its source. So in, in the state of self-realization, there is no ego to rise to say, I am self-realized. And Brahman certainly doesn't go around saying I am self-realized, because in the view of Brahman, which is what we actually are. There is nothing other than ourself. So there's, uh, there's no need for us to think I am self-realized. So this is, as Bhagavan says in another verse in Uludunapu, verse 21, he ends by saying, Unadal Khan. That literally means becoming food is seeing. What does he mean by that? Seeing what we actually are means becoming food. That is only when this ego is swallowed. In the light of pure of the pure awareness that we actually are, that alone is knowing ourselves as we actually are. So this ego can never know ourselves. This person that we take ourselves to be can also never know ourselves. We know ourselves only by separating ourselves from this person and thereby dissolving this ego back into its source. Its source being what we actually are. So who is it who realizes the self? It is only the self who realizes the self. But even the term the self is not actually a term used by Bhagavan. In Tamil, when Bhagavan was talking about what we actually are, the term he used was Swarupa, which means real nature, or Atma Swarupa, the real nature of ourself. So, in other words, that Swarupa refers to what we actually are. So, what we actually are alone knows what we actually are. As ego, we can never know what we actually are because ego is a false awareness of ourself. Um, I don't know, Harshita, are you here? And if so, have I adequately answered? Ah, yes, you are here. Is that an adequate answer to your question? She's here, but she missed the first part because she she joined us late. So oh. the third, Harshita, has he answered your question? And for the other part, by the way, you can watch it on the video replay on YouTube when he posts it in about a week yes yes uh it is clear it is very clear to me yes i missed the first part but i can wait for the youtube recording yeah thanks a lot again okay right thank you sure. excellent excellent 
Um, we go to our second question now from Dharma. When one meditates, does one have to concentrate on the spiritual heart on the uh, right side or not? Ramana Maharshi says, there should not be an object-subject relationship in meditation. Please explain how to proceed. And it, it, that's an imaginary real heart on the right side anyway, isn't it, Michael? I'll, I'll, I'll say about that. That is firstly, uh, yes, it is correct. The in, in, the, the, in any other meditation, there is a meditator and something that is meditated on. But in self-investigation, what we are meditating on is ourself. So there are not two things, a, a, a meditator meditating on something other than itself. The meditator is meditating on itself. In other words, the, so there's no subject-object relationship there because subject-object relation, we are, we are a subject only in relation to the objects. Only when we see objects, can we be, or see or know objects, can we be said to be a subject. When we are seeing only ourselves, we are not seeing any object, so we are not the subject. We, so self-investigation is self-attentiveness. We're attending to or meditating on nothing other than ourselves. That's why one term that Bhagavan used to describe this practice of self-investigation is Swarupa Dhyana. Swarupa Dhyana literally means meditating on or contemplating ourselves, our real nature. What Swarupa means what we actually are. That means our being, I am. So in, in this practice that Bhagavan is, in all other meditations, there's subject-object. But in this um, practice that Bhagavan taught us, there's no subject or object, because what we are attending to is ourself. So there's no object, and because of the absence of any object, there's no subject. That is, when the subject attends to itself, it ceases to be a subject, because we, we are a subject only in relation to the object. And what we are meditating on, the subject is ego. What we are meditating on is not Though sometimes Bhagavan described it as ego investigating itself, what he meant by that is ego investigating its own reality. So what we are attending to in self-investigation is not even ego. It is the reality of ego. It is what underlies ego. For some people, that seems a bit... Um, they, they think, oh, I know this ego, but I don't know what underlies it. So for them, Bhagavan sometimes used to say, sometimes people used to say, Bhagavan, in this, who am I? Is I ego or, or the self? Bhagavan would generally say, e ego. Why did he say that? Supposing we are, uh, we are walking down a path in the dim light of dusk with Bhagavan, and we see something lying on the path that looks to us like a snake. So we're very afraid and say, oh, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, see, there's a snake there. Bhagavan knows that it's just a rope. So Bhagavan says, look at it very carefully, and you'll see it's just a rope. But if we then ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, you say, look at it very carefully, which it should I look at? Should I look at the snake or at the rope? What is he going to answer? Because we think, in our view, it seems to be a snake. He'll say, look at the snake. If you look at the snake very carefully, what do you see? You see only the rope, the underlying reality. So the relationship between ego and our real nature is like the, even we can't call it a relationship. Is the snake related to the rope? No, they're one and the same thing. That what is actually there is only a rope, but it seems to be a snake. 
But it's, even when it seems to be a snake, it's always actually only a rope. Likewise, ego is like the, that, like that snake. It, it, what we actually are is always just the pure awareness I am. But now it seems to us, but we're not just this I am. We are I am this body. It, we are we, we identify that is the ego is a is an illusory superimposition upon our being. So if we attend to ego, underneath we will we will then see the underlying reality, which is our own being. So as I say, there's no subject-object relationship in this. Um, if we if you concentrate on any place on the body or any place in the body, the body is obviously an object, and every place in the body is also an object. So meditating on of any point in the body is not what Bhagavan taught us. In fact, the same question you asked is asked in it's asked and an answer is recorded in talks. In section 273 of talks, uh, a devotee asked Bhagavan, should I meditate on the right chest in order to meditate on the heart? And Bhagavan's answer is very, very clear. The heart is not physical. Meditation should not be on the right or on the left. Meditation should be on the self. Everyone knows I am. Who is this I? It will be neither within nor without, neither on the right nor on the left. I am, that is all. So what we have to meditate on is only I am, nothing other than I am. And that doesn't mean meditating on the words I am. What do the words I am refer to? That is what we need to meditate on. That's our own being. Uh, so you say, please explain how to proceed. Um, how to proceed is to attend only to your own being. I am is the heart. What does the word heart mean? Heart means the center. And what is the center of all our experience? So long as we're experiencing phenomena, the center of our experience, uh, of all our experiences, Ourself, the experiencer, in other words, the subject or ego. This is the center of everything. The whole world seems to revolve around this, this, uh, what we now take ourselves to be, the subject. This, uh, now we take ourselves to be a person, but uh, as this person, we are the subject. We seem to be aware of all this. So we are the center of our experience, or whatever we experience, it's centered around ourselves. But what is the center of this ego? Ego is the mixed awareness. I am this body, I am Dharma, or I am whoever. The center of that is I am. So I am alone is the heart. That's what Bhagavan really meant by the term heart. However, why did Bhagavan sometimes talk about the, the heart, two digits of right from the center of the chest? There's a reason for this. Many, not everyone who came to Bhagavan was. Uh, was mature enough, spiritually mature enough to grasp his teachings. Because though Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple, they're also very deep and very subtle. So we must have a deep and subtle under, uh, we must be, be willing to understand things in a deep and subtle way in order to grasp them. But some people who whose minds are more drawn to other paths, people whose minds are drawn, for example, to the path of yoga, or to um, certain people do some types of tapas or, or so-called spiritual practice, not really spiritual practice, mental 
practices in order to gain powers and so on. There were such people around Bhagavan. So such people, when Bhagavan talked about the heart, they said, what is the place in the body for the heart? Is the heart you're talking about the same as the Anahata Chakra? Anahata Chakra is one of the six chakras described in yoga that is supposed to be around the center of the chest. Is it the Anahata Chakra? Bhagavan said, no, it's not the Anahata Chakra. Bhagavan explained to them, heart is the center, it has nothing to do with the body. But they, because their minds are so outward going, they couldn't think but think in terms of the body. So to satisfy them, Bhagavan said, in relation to this body, now we experience the whole body as I. If, if I touch your hand, you feel, oh, you've touched me. So there's no part of the body that we feel is not ourselves. It's as if this uh, awareness I is spread throughout the body or identified with the whole body. But though we, ident though we experience the whole body as ourselves, there's a place in the body where we are, so to speak, centered. Uh, Bhagavan used to illustrate this with an example. He said, suppose um, you ask a schoolboy, uh, can, you, can you do this sum? Or, or suppose you ask a group of schoolboys, which of you can do this sum correctly? What would they say? Would they point at their head and say, I can do it correctly? No. They point at the chair and say, I can do it correctly, sir. Um, and if you ask them, who, which of you is uh, willing to run to the shop to fetch a newspaper? They'll say, I will run to the shop. They don't point at their feet and say, I will run to the shop. Why do we all naturally point to the chest when we're referring to ourselves? Because that is the point in the body where we feel ourselves to be centered. And there are other, there is other um, uh, related things. Supposing they did just to illustrate this. Supposing you're walking down the street and suddenly a car behind you honks its horn or suddenly there's an explosion somewhere. You feel a shock. When you feel a shock, if you observe the point in the body where you feel the shock, it, you can feel a, a sensation here, two digits to the right from the center of the chest. That is because this is the, the seat of all the, I mean, this is the, the center point of ego in the body, so to speak. And it's, it's therefore the seat of emotions and everything. If, if we are, if we are safe, if we are bereaved, if someone very, very dear to us passes away, we talk of um, feeling brokenhearted because our emotions, our feelings are centered around the, this chest, particularly this point two digits to right from the center of the chest. So in relation to the body, where we are centered is here. But this is never, the whole body is an object. This point two digits to the right from the center of the chest. Though we experience this whole body as ourself, it is nevertheless an object. So that is not what we should meditate on. That's why Bhagavan said, meditation should not be on the right or the, le or the left. Meditation should be on the self. What he means here by the self, there's no term actually in Tamil for the self. What is referred to as the self, he may either say, uh, Tan, tan, tan means oneself, or Atma means oneself, or he may say Swarupa. Swarupa means the real nature of ourself, which amounts to the same thing. So uh, that is that's why in the next sentence he says, meditation should be on the self. Everyone knows I am.
That is this I am is the self. This is the heart. This is the center. So who is this I? That is what we need to investigate. Though he puts it as a question, who is this I? He's not expecting us to sit down and question this. Who is who? Who who is this I? He's in, he expects us to investigate who who we are by in, uh, meditating on ourself alone, meditating on I or I am alone, not on the words, but on what the words these words refer to. So uh, Dharma is that a um, oh it doesn't look like Dharma's here, but anyway I hope that's an adequate answer to Dharma's question. Uh, Dharma is here. Oh. Dharma listed under the name of Maya. Maya oh. and Dharma, you gotta unmute yourself. Now we yeah, thank you very well, Michael. This is clear, and uh, and uh, now I adequately understand the whole process because I do sometimes like okay, I can't concentrate. I say okay, let me go into the heart center uh, and. There's a mismatch at times. I don't know whether I'm going to go left or right or in the center, but I do take my heart as the uh, at the point where I should be meditating. Although I, what I is know that heart? That you yourself have a heart. The heart is not a place in time and space. It, it, you yeah. yourself have a heart. That's what Bhagavan means by heart. Okay. So when we say the I am, then okay. So just like. If I take the word of uh, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj and, and, and Ramana Maharishi, there's a huge overlap in terms of what they explain about Atma Vichara. And they say, okay, keep on, 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 on saying the I am, I am, I am. So where you, you hold on to the, to the I by, say, just saying I am, I am, either mentally or verbally but normally we do it mentally so when we say i am so in order to 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 point to the place of uh, the atma so there is no place to point to right no okay because places are all objects okay. time and space are things known by us so they're okay. objects known by us so we're not looking any for anything in time and space. Mm -hmm. We are looking, attending to that, to which, who is aware of time and space? I am. That is what we need to attend to. Okay. So my next point is, uh, wherever we are, when the world, right, and uh, we are doing household chores, we are gardening, we are driving, Still, we can do the Atma Vichara by, by taking to the mantra, I am, I am, right? Is it, or is it something that we should you, kind of... You can, you can do Atma Vichara at any time or in any place, because what, whatever you may be doing, you, the one thing you are always aware of is your own existence, I am. Okay. I am is not meant as a mantra. Bhagavan never asked us to meditate on the words I am. He yes. asked us to meditate on that to which the words I am refer. If, if, mm -hmm. I, if I ask you to eat an apple, I'm not asking you to eat a word, the word apple. I'm asking <laughs> you to eat the object that is referred to by that word. 
So when Bhagavan says meditate on I am, he doesn't mean meditate on the words I am, but meditate on your on yourself, on your own existence. What does I am mean? I I am means I exist. So I am what the words I am refer to is our own existence, our own being. That is what we need to attend to. So that is the Satchit Ananda, right? Yes. Okay, Dharma, we're going to yeah. move on. And, and, and I'll just one more thing I'll say in that. You referred to Nisagadatta. We have to be very careful with Nisagadatta because though uh, some of the things he says superficially appear to be similar to what Bhagavan says, there are many things he says that are. Uh, not only contradict what Bhagavan says, but he also contradicts himself. Because when he talks about I am, sometimes he talks about I am as if it is real. Sometimes he says the I am is the first thing to appear. So Bhagavan is far, far clearer. Bhagavan distinguishes I am, that is, I am refers to our being. Our being is eternal. It is the one thing that ever exists. So I am is not something that appears and disappears. What appears and disappears is ego. Ego is that same I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am Dharma, I am Michael, I am Ted, I am whoever. That adjunct uh, conflated awareness is what appears and disappears, rises and subsides. That is ego. But I am is not referring to ego. I am refers only to our being. So we need to distinguish that, that Bhagavan was always very, very clear on this. I am is what is real. I am this or I am that is ego. It is false. It's a false identification. What we actually are is nothing but I am. So to think I am this or I am that is wrong. Even to think I am Brahman is wrong because so long as you think of Brahman, you're thinking of as you. We cannot but how when we use the word Brahman, it seems to denote something other than ourselves. So if Brahman is I, then why to think I am Brahman? Why not think simply I am I? But Bhagavan doesn't even ask us to think I am I. He asks us to investigate who we are. If we investigate who we are, we will see clearly that what we actually are is nothing other than I am. So I am I is the ultimate experience. So Nisagadatta in this respect and many other respects, it's very confusing. And many, many of his, he, he has many ideas but are not, there are many dualistic ideas that are mixed up in his, his philosophy. So Nisagadatta, if we want to follow Bhagavan's path, Nisagadatta is not a good guide. People who try to understand Bhagavan by reading Nisagadatta, they get into confusion. Bhagavan is, if we read Bhagavan, and to read Bhagavan, even about Bhagavan, there are some confusing things because a lot of the things that Bhagavan said were not clearly recorded. By those who recorded Bhagavan's saying often didn't record them clearly. Moreover, many times when people ask questions to Bhagavan, because they're, it's clear from the question that they are not yet uh, willing or able to grasp his core teachings, um, Bhagavan often had to modify his teachings to suit them. 
I mean, Bhagavan said, you cannot give one teaching for all, because not everyone is ready to grasp. The, the deepest teachings cannot be grasped by everyone. So Bhagavan often had to speak in a more diluted way. So if we want to know the real teachings of Bhagavan, what are the core teachings of Bhagavan, the essential teachings of Bhagavan, we have to go back to his own original writings, to works like Nana, that is, Who Am I? Uludunapri, the 40 verses. Upadesha Undia, the 30 verses. And uh, Arunacha Stutpanjkam, the five hymns, that is, Arunacha Aksharam, like the 108 verses. Um, Arunacha Navamanimala, which is nine verses. Patikam, 11 verses. Ashtakam, eight verses. And Pancharatnam, five verses. And um, Anma Vidde, that's another one, that's uh, five verses, very important work. And um, uh, Ekamma Panchakam and Aplapatu. These are the original writings of Bhagavan. These are the works we have to rely on in order to get to the real heart of Bhagavan's teaching. Because what Bhagavan says in these words, works, he says unequivocally. So if we grasp what he says in these works, then we can read other books like talks and so on, and we can sort out the, the chaff from the grain. I mean, the grain from the chaff. We can see whatever, we, like this passage I read, this represents the real teachings of Bhagavan. But there are many other passages in talks which are not uh, adequately representing Bhagavan's real teachings. Partly because he's talking, he's answering people at their own level. So what he said was not always his pure teaching. And partly because the person recording often didn't uh, 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 grasp, didn't, I mean, what they recorded is what they understood. And often they didn't understand correctly. Michael, thank you for that. I think it's important that everybody has an understanding of what you were saying towards the end there. You listed uh, maybe nine or ten references to Ramana's own words. If you could take the time one day this week and jot them down and send them to me, I'll make sure everybody gets these. Yeah. I try to remind everybody and myself, because many of us come from different traditions, to leave our traditions at the doorstep and focus on Ramana as much as possible. And I think that'll be a way you suggested that can be an aid yes, for us. Yes. That is all the guidance we need is clearly given by Bhagavan. If yeah. we if we rely on other um on other we we'll end up getting into a confusion. Because yeah. nobody has expressed things so clearly and so deeply as Bhagavan. For example, earlier I explained the meaning of verse 25 of Uludunapadu. What Bhagavan has revealed there about the nature of ego has not been revealed so clearly in any of the ancient texts or by anyone else. Only Bhagavan has revealed this, but the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to things other than itself and to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. That, that, that the nature of ego has not been so clearly explained by anyone prior to Bhagavan. And that is the key to understanding the efficacy of what Bhagavan is teaching us. Why is it But only by attending to ourselves we can destroy this ego? Why is it attending to ourselves the only means by which we can destroy the ego? Because by attending to anything else, we are nourishing and sustaining this illusory appearance of ego. Mm -hmm. Excellent. 
Let's move on to the next question, if it's okay. Are you ready to move and, and on? Just in answer to your question about sending you a list, if you go to my website, if you see the right-hand column under translations, you will see there's a list of works there. Unfortunately, that list is not complete because I haven't placed all my, posted all my translations online, but I hope to do so in the coming months. Um, so I, I want to make all my, my translations of all Bhagavan's main works available. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. Well, we're at the halfway part, and we've got a couple of questions to go. Plus, uh, a new question's been added here on the chat line, if she's still here. Uh, one second. I do have a message that I wanted to make sure I get to. Okay. And, and it's from Mukta. And if people want to add questions while they're here joining us, that way I'll get to those two, or we'll get to them, if not today, the next time that Michael's with us. Next question is from Moxie. How can we, while practicing self-investigation, popular topic today, how can we, while practicing self-investigation, avoid turning it into a search for a subtle imaginary object or an intellectual game, perhaps? I often feel when I reach a point of silence and stillness in this practice that my mind quickly constructs a concept about self as a distraction. Um, yes. How we, that is, we, this practice is an investigation, as you say. So we, it, it requires a very, um, a very discerning mind. We need to, we need to, we need to use our discrimination. So we, with, Firstly, we need to, as I said in, when I was beginning to answer um, uh, the, the Harshita's question, the first question, first we need to have a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings. Because having a clear understanding will keep us on the right track. Secondly, um, yes, it's very easy, particularly at first, but, but our mind will track, trick us into thinking that we're investigating ourselves when, in fact, we're attending to some subtle object. Um, but this is where we need to have clear discrimination. Any object, objects are things that appear and disappear. Anything that appears or disappears, in other words, anything that we are not constantly aware of is something other than ourselves. The only thing that we are constantly aware of, not only in waking and dream, but also in sleep, is our own being, I am. So we, by, we, we need to keep our attention only on our own being. If, uh, if we're go, trying to go deep in this practice, we are trying to attend to that we, which exists on its own in sleep. So if we're aware of anything that doesn't exist in sleep, but we are not aware of in sleep, then we are not attending to ourselves. So we, we, with the, that is, we need to have a con clear conceptual understanding to start on this part. But obviously, we are, what we are seeking is not a mere conceptual understanding. We can get the conceptual understanding by reading the books. But the conceptual understanding is necessary in order to keep us on track, in order, to direct, in order for us to direct our attention in the right di direction. We need to have a clear conceptual understanding. 
so the conceptual understanding is a is a is a necessary means, but it is not an end in itself. Um, using that con clear conceptual understanding, we need to direct our attention to ourself alone and not to any subtle imaginary objects. And we 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 have to we have to we we have to be. It's very difficult to say this because we're not trying to obviously to where we're trying to attend to ourselves. We're not um, we're not mentally analyzing. We are trying to keep our attention on ourselves, but we need to be vigilant. But our attention is not slipping away from ourselves towards anything else, however subtle it may be. We are trying to attend to our being alone, not to anything other than that. Um, and. You, uh, um, Moxie, you say, I feel often when I reach a point of silence or stillness in this practice, but my mind quickly constructs a concept. Yes, they, they, it is the nature of the mind to go outwards, to go away from ourselves. So all concepts are things other than ourselves. So anything constructed by the mind is something other than ourselves. So we we need to be very vigilant not to allow our attention to go away towards anything other than our being. And here I will add one more point of caution. Since you talk about reaching a point of silence or stillness, we our aim in this uh, practice is to attend to our being. That doesn't mean that we have to be in a state of silence or stillness, because we exist. Even when the mind's in an agitated state, we still exist. So what we need to do is to attend to that which is shining equally in stillness and in chaos, in stillness and in noise. What is the one thing that we are always aware of? So we are not. We should not be concerned about the state of the mind, whether the mind is in a is is agitated or in a state of stillness. We shouldn't even notice that because our attention should be only on our being. That is how we bring the mind. That is the most effective way to bring the mind to a state of stillness by attending to our being. But if we take stillness or silence as an aim. That becomes something other than ourselves. Because are you? I, am I in a state of stillness or silence now? No, I'm not. I seem to be. I'm talking. I'm thinking. I'm answering questions. So I can't say I'm in a state of perfect stillness. Or it seems I'm not. So that stillness, that mental stillness, is not what I'm seeking. I'm seeking that which is equally present, whether I'm in a state of relative stillness or a state of relative activity. What is the one thing that is always shining? Is I am, because I am is our being, and we cannot be doing anything, or thinking anything, or saying anything, or being disturbed by anything without being. So being is what is fundamental. That is what we are investigating. So um, we shouldn't be looking for silence or stillness. We should only be attending to that which is always shining, namely our own being. Moxie, is that a, a, a clear and adequate answer to your question? Yes, thank you, Michael. Um, I think the one thing I didn't make clear in my question was um, when I when the mental chatter kind of goes away. Um, I wonder if that's the the manalea that Ramana um, warned against 
And so I start conceptualizing, okay, I got, I have to look for myself. I have to attend to myself. And then it becomes a sort of mental yeah, game. I, I know the, the, the mind will trick us in so many ways. Manolea is a state like sleep. So if you're in a state of Manolea, you won't even be aware that you're in a state of Manolea. I mean, it's a state where the mind is absent there. But it's very easy if we, if we take coming to a state of free of the mental chatter, free of the thoughts, just a state of silence or peace, it's very easy to lull ourselves into a state of Manolea. That is what the yogis are doing. They, but, but what is Bhagavan said? What is, the yogis call Kaval and Nivikalpa Samadhi, which they take as the aim, because that's a state completely devoid of mental activity. That is just a state of Manolea. So we are not to seek any. We we are not seeking mere quiescence of mind. We are seeking our own being, which is present whether the mind is quiescent or active. That we always have to remember. So, naturally, if we're attending to our being, the mind will come to a state of quiescence. But we shouldn't attach importance to that quiescence. We should hold on to our being. If we slip into manolea, in other words, if we fall asleep, in effect, it is because we've lost, lost hold of our, our being. So long as we're holding on to our being, we are... We are um, in the Upanishads, it's, it talks about the razor's edge. This is an analogy. We are to we this following this path is like walking on a razor's edge. That means we shouldn't slip either side. One side is being carried away by thoughts. The other side is slipping into sleep or manolea. So how do we remain balanced between these two? It's only by holding on to our being. So long as we hold on to our being, because our attention is on our being, we won't be carried away by thoughts. And because our attention is on our being, we won't slip into uh, manolea, sleep. If, if we get carried away by thoughts, or if we fall into sleep, that means we've lost hold on our being. So the only thing we should be concerned about is holding on to our being. Of course, we'll slip. We 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 can't. It, it, the nature of the mind is to go outwards, or if it's being prevented from going outwards, it'll take the other course and fall into sleep. Because holding on to our being is is like putting our head on the chopping block. We are inviting our own. It, it's suicide. We're this is a suicide mission if we're following this path. That, that's not not death of the body, but the real suicide: death of ourself, of ego. So we, um, the, the mind will find every trick up, up its sleeve, so to speak, to try and divert us away. Because that it's it's we when we say the mind, it means ourselves, this ego. We will find every trick in the book to divert our attention away from ourselves, because our very survival depends upon that. Our survival as ego. So we, we, we none of us can hold on to our being deeply and uninterruptedly for a long period of time. Sooner or later, we will either fall asleep or we'll get carried away by thought. Doesn't matter. However many times we slip down from this self-attentiveness, we just have to return to the self-attentiveness. In other words, however many times our attention goes outwards, we have to bring it back inwards. And there's no shortcut. 
patient and persistent practice is the only way. Nobody can succeed in this path without persevering. So we all face difficulties because the, the mind will find, well, we will find every every excuse possible to attend to anything other than ourselves. So we, this is we we are, we are this as Bhagavan said, this spiritual path is a battle fought within our own will between our vishaya vasanas on the one hand and sat vasana on the other hand vishaya vasanas means our inclination or liking to go outwards towards vishayas means objects phenomena so our, our liking to attend to phenomena on the one hand and our liking to attend to our being sat vasana that sat sat vasana means that inclination towards our being so the liking, we, 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 there's a battle going on within our will between, on the one hand, our liking to hold on to our being, and on the other hand, our liking to go outwards. And this battle goes on till the end. And the, the, the deeper we go within, if, if, you, if, you're, if a group of hunters are hunting a tiger, and they've got spears and shield. They don't have any guns or anything. They've just got uh, spears and so on. The tiger will be wounded. And finally, the tiger will be uh, cornered. It'll be uh, trapped in a corner. Then, because it's got so many wounds, the tiger will be very weak. But in spite of its weakness, because its very life is in danger, it will fight back ferociously till its last breath. Such is the nature of ego. So this this battle is not over till ego is destroyed. So we, it, this is this is a struggle for all of us. This is what Bhagavan is writing about in Aranacharamai, the hundred eight verses. This is all a description of this inner battle that is going on in the heart of each and every one of us. But this battle is what he describes in one of the verses as Aropuratum, the warfare of grace. That is, who is really fighting this battle is Bhagavan, in the form of his grace, is fighting this battle on our behalf. Even our liking to turn within is only given by his grace. So as Bhagavan used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's grace that draws us to this path. It's grace that motivates us to follow this path, and it is grace that will finally swallow us. And that grace is Bhagavan himself. And that is what we ourselves actually are. But grace is not something coming from heaven that's going to descend on us. Grace is always shining in our own heart as our own being, I am. Okay. <laughs> you ready to move on? Yeah, thank you, Michael. The, the clarification that you gave about um, not try, not trying to find that that mental stillness and and what we're looking for is here even in the middle of activity and mental chatter. It's extremely helpful. That that is a very very important point to understand. Many people they superficially think, but if they can stop all thoughts, people even ask, "If I stop all thoughts, is that the I am?" As if I am is goes absent when you start thinking. But who is thinking? I am thinking. So. I am is the one thing that is never absent. So that is what we are investigating. Moxie, thank you very much for your question. Uh, as always, Michael, very thorough with all the questions. Mm. And a quick thanks to Moxie and Dharma for your question and comment, and for Harshita too. And we have at least one more. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a good sized question on a very important topic and McNair, McNair Ezard is from Asheville, North Carolina. He's been joining you, Michael, for the last uh, three or four Sundays, I believe. And rather than me try to get your feelings expressed well, why don't you read your question so Michael can address it directly to you. Thanks. Can you, can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yes. You've kind of answered it in a way, but I, I will go ahead because it's, I think something else might come up. It's on page 45 in the sense of being right regarding use of the question, who am I, that it should not be repeated like a mantra, which you've said today, and that once we have turned our attention successfully towards ourself, the verbalized thought, who am I, would only distract us away from our vigilantly attentive state of clear thought, free, self-conscious, just as any other thought would. But then on page 167, you write that Sri Ramana sometimes suggested we could continuously think I, 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 or I am, I am, I am. So if we think thus, our attention will naturally be drawn back to the consciousness that is denoted by the words I and I am. Um, the thought of the name I or I am will draw, draw our attention to the subject, non-objective consciousness denoted by that name. Therefore, thinking I, I, I is a useful aid to the practice of self-attention, at least until such time as we become familiar with the experience of attending to our mere consciousness of being. So my question is, why is one who am I considered a mantra while thinking repeatedly I, 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 or I am, I am, I am is not, and cannot repetition within reason of the question who am I also serve to draw our attention to the subject the non-objective consciousness denoted by that question. I appreciate your help because I'm, I find that with my monkey mind, it always wants to jump around in many directions and both of these, who am I and repetition of I or I am, seem like they could at least temporarily help with self-attention, but it's, it'd be easy for it to turn into a mantra. Yeah. Um, uh, but the point, the main point to understand is what self-investigation is, is self-attentiveness, attending to ourself. Asking the question, who am I, or repeating the word I, or I am, may help to some extent to direct our attention towards ourself. These are useful aids to the extent to which they help us to... Um, direct our attention to ourselves. The reason Bhagavan often said, who am I is not a mantra, is because many people who don't think deeply about what Bhagavan said, they know, oh, Ramana Maharshi has taught, who am I? We have to inquire, who am I? So they, they sit down and begin asking themselves, who am I, who am I, who am I? And they ask Bhagavan, is this the correct way of doing it? So for them, Bhagavan said, who am I is not a mantra. Um, the same we can say about I. I. We shouldn't be just repeating I as if it's a, a mantra. We, when we, but Bhagavan did say, I is the first name of God. So supposing you're thinking of the name of God, supposing you're thinking of the name Ramana, why do we think of that name Ramana? What does that name Ramana refer to? It refers to Bhagavan. So 
it's not the it's not just the name that we should be meditating on. It's what the name refers to. So in any in any uh, nama japa, that is repetition of the name of God, you shouldn't be just thinking of the name. The, uh, the, the purpose of thinking of the name is to fix your mind on the God who is referred to, who, whose name it is. So, like with this, um, the word I, some people, they misapply this clue given by Bhagavan in exactly the same way who am I is misused. They misuse this. They simply think all I have to do is repeat I, 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 and that's doing something. No. Why Bhagavan gave this clue uh, is because if you think of a word, just mention anything like a word tree, when you hear the word tree, it denotes something, it brings something to your mind. Or a verb like running, it brings a certain action to your mind. So words all refer to something. So our aim is not to meditate on the word, but on what the word refers to. So as I said earlier, if someone says to you, um, eat an apple, they're not asking you to eat the word apple, they're asking you to eat the object that the word apple refers to. So when Bhagavan says, go on thinking I, I, it will lead to that place. He, he suggests that just as a clue, but if we think the word I and try to see what is this word I referring to, it's referring to ourselves. So that can help us to direct our attention to ourselves. But in other, this clue he gives us in the fifth paragraph of Nana. He says, even if one goes on thinking I, 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 it will lead to that place. That place means the heart, our own being. Um, but in other places, in Ulutanapya, for example, he says, without even uttering the word I uh, by mouth, or it implies also by mentally, go, uh, with, uh, uh, with the mind sinking within, seeking the source from which it rose, that alone is self-inquiry. So, it's it it's it's an at an initial stage, it's a useful clue. It can help us to 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 grasp what is meant by self-attentiveness. Once we've grasped what is meant by self-attentiveness, um, the the need to repeat I or to ask ourselves who am I that drops off. Is that a, a clear and adequate answer? Yes, perfect. And it was helpful hearing the earlier responses as well to the other questions because that added to it. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Right, right, right. Then I have a question, if I can find it quick, um, from Mukta. By the way, Michael Kunal, uh, I think, was asking for your website. And I got it right here, but why don't you say it so people can write you down? Write it's sim it. simply happiness of being, all is one word, dot com. Hey, hey, Ted, is it okay if I ask directly? Because sure. I typed a different. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, I just want to know what, uh, because I've had the states where I was able to watch the uh thoughts and everything and body and not know that I, I i mean know that it's not me and i'm the consciousness but there are times like you said i'm caught up in thoughts like so much or 
or the manolaya or whatever. So at that point, it frustrates me and I don't know how to come back to the being when there is so much disturbance um, that I've, I've gotten, I'm knowing that I got startled and I, I don't know how to come back to being. Okay, firstly, about um, watching thoughts or whatever, that is not a practice taught by Bhagavan. So long as we are watching thoughts, as, um, as someone asked earlier, it, it is not, the, the practice that Bhagavan taught us is not one involving subject and object. If you're attending to thoughts, thoughts are the object, and you who are attending to them or watching them are the subject. So you've got a, a duality there. That is not the practice Bhagavan taught us. Bhagavan said, however many thoughts arise, so what? As and when each thought arises, if one vigilantly investigates to whom does it rise, it will be clear to me. So the, the point is, whatever thoughts appear, we shouldn't be concerned about thoughts. Let thoughts appear or not appear. It's no concern of ours. But if they appear, to whom do they appear? They appear only to me. So let me attend to myself. So uh, the aim in Bhagavan's, the practice Bhagavan has taught us is not attending to, um, is not uh, watching thoughts. This is another place because earlier someone had referred to Nisargadatta. Nisargadatta, like many other people, sometimes refers to uh, uh, watching thoughts. Uh, it seems to recommend watching thoughts. That is not what Bhagavan taught at all. Uh, uh, sorry to interrupt. So when I am in myself only, I can observe everything, right? I can observe no, the thoughts and everything. No, you're no? observing. Even now, you're observing everything. You're. It's only when we rise as ego that we are observing things. When you're in yourself, as you are in sleep, are you observing anything? No. So it's, when you're observing anything, as Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uludunapadu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? What does he mean here by form? Form means anything that is distinguishable from any other thing. So he's not just talking about physical forms. He's talking about thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything. All phenomena are forms. Only when we identify ourselves as a form, as I am this body, do, are we aware of other things. That is why in waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, and consequently we're aware of so many other things. In sleep, we are not aware of anything other, we are not aware of ourselves as a body, and consequently we are not aware of anything other than ourselves. So that is the state of being in ourselves. In the state in which we are being in ourselves, that means being as we are, we are not aware of anything other than ourselves. That is what that's what I was referring to earlier when I was talking about verse 25 of Uludunapadu, where Bhagavan summarized his teaching very, very beautifully there. That is the nature of ego is to is to always be grasping form. Without grasping form, ego cannot rise, cannot stand, and cannot flourish. So all thoughts, all feelings, all phenomena, whatever, whatever you whatever you can observe is are all forms. What we are to observe is not any object, any form, any phenomenon. We are to observe only the observer. Witness only the witness. 
This is a this is a not only in the Sagadatta, many, many, many people teach this because in in a lot of Vedantic texts, they talk they, there's a word that is used, Sakshi. Sakshi means witness. But as Bhagavan pointed out, there are two senses in which this word Sakshi is used. Once in one sense, Sakshi means that which is aware of other things. But Sakshi that is aware of other things is ego. It's only as ego that we're aware of anything other than ourselves. But also sometimes Brahman is referred to as Sarva Sakshi, the witness of all, or as uh, Jiva Sakshi, the witness of the Jiva. Bhagavan said, that doesn't mean that Brahman knows all these things. Their Sakshi means Sanadi. Sanadi means presence. So what is meant by Sakshi in those contexts is just in the mere presence of Brahman, everything appears. The jiva and everything else appears. So in that sense, Brahman is, is Sabha Sakshi or Jiva Sakshi. Doesn't mean that Brahman is knowing all these things, but without Brahman, none of these things could be happening. It's only in the presence of Brahman that all these things appear. But in whose view do all these things appear? Only in the view of Jiva, the ego. Sorry, you were beginning to ask so how, how, to, how to how to witness the witness then? Like uh, I I'm able to be a witness and watch the thoughts but or watch the body thoughts everything but i don't know how to witness the witness then this is this is what bhagavan's teachings are all about this is why i began by saying first we need to clearly understand we need to have a, a at least to some extent we need to have a, a clear grasp on bhagavan's teachings what we are is not any phenomenon so what we are to attend to is not any object, any, uh, not the body or the mind or the thoughts or the feelings or anything. We are only to attend to our own being. Because our minds are so accustomed to going outwards, to attending to things other than ourselves, at first, for many of us, it seems difficult to grasp what is meant by attending to ourselves. So this is where we need to take a step back. Think carefully about it. What is the one thing we are always aware of? Are we not always aware I am? Whatever else we may be aware of, we are always aware of our own existence. We may be overlooking our existence, but there's never a moment when we do not know our existence. Because we cannot know anything else without knowing ourselves. Because I, who is knowing all this? I am knowing all this. So our own existence is the screen on which all these uh, phenomena appear. So the one thing we are always aware of is our own being, I am. So we need to learn how to attend only to our being. Words can only take us so far. But this... This is why Bhagavan called this path vichara. Vichara means investigation. We can learn how to investigate ourselves only by investigating ourselves. If you've never ridden a bicycle, you cannot learn how to ride a bicycle simply by reading books or by listening to lectures on how to ride a bicycle. There's only one way to learn to ride a bicycle, to get on a bicycle and to wobble and fall. Get on it again and wobble and fall and wobble and fall and wobble and fall any number of times until finally you begin to get the hang of it. And after 
a few uh, days or weeks of practice, it'll be second nature to you. It'll, there's nothing easier than riding a bicycle once you're used to it. But before you start, it seems impossible. How can I balance on these two wheels? Exactly the same with this. It seems something very, um, very abstract, something very intangible. How can I attend to myself? How can I attend to my own being? But if we, if we calmly and patiently try, slowly, slowly, we will get the hang of it. But first, we need to understand what it is we're trying to do. We are not trying to, at to attend to anything other than ourselves. That is not being the witness. Being the witness means attending to ourself alone. That is what it meant. But even the word being the witness is not actually what is taught. It is why we are taught that we are the witness is to help us to distinguish ourselves from all objects. Because all objects are things known by us. We are the knower of them. So in that sense, we are the witness. So what we are to attend to is only ourself, the knower, and not anything that is known. Okay, we got a couple other people. While can, we have can, can I, can I ju just ask? So are you getting at least some inkling of what you should be trying to do? No, really. What does okay. it even Okay, but you, it, it's not something that you can grasp just... I, sometimes when pe Bhagavan, people ask Bhagavan, but Bhagavan, how do I attend to myself? How do I go within myself? Bhagavan said, do you need to be shown the way inside your own home? If the way were objective, it could be sh shown objectively. This is not an objective path. This is subjective we're going back to not even to the subject we're going to the, we are trying to investigate the reality of the subject so this cannot be adequately expressed in words all of bhagavan's teachings are pointing us towards this but we have to think carefully about what he is referring to can you you say that you are you witness thoughts when you witness thoughts, are you not aware I am witnessing thoughts? Yes, I so, am. So, but what is the witness is the I, but thoughts are objects that are being witnessed. So, what you need to attend to is that I, not to be objects. Yes, I'm not attached to the object. I'm aware. I'm watching heaven. What, what's the next thought going to come? I'm aware every second when so, I practice. So long as you are aware of objects, you are identifying yourself with this body. This body means the bundle of five sheaths. So in order to separate ourselves from these bundle of five sheaths, we need to attend to ourself alone, to our own being, not to any object. And Bhagavan says in, in, in that verse 25 of Uludunaptu, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping form, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. So by attending to anything other than ourself, we are nourishing and sustaining ego. In order to bring about the dissolution of ego, we need to attend to our being alone. In other words, to be un the reality underlying ego. Okay, please tell me if this is right. When I attended to, uh, I mean, I was not watching or I was, how do I say it? I, I knew that I'm the, or I'm feeling that I'm the consciousness and I'm just see, observing the body, observing the thoughts. I'm not like make, 
a very big effort it was so it happened effortlessly that day i wish i could go back there but it's it's like just that is, that is a very easy practice to do because the nature of ego is to attend to other things so if you give it the work of attending to anything other than itself ego is very happy oh fine i can attend to i can i i can spend all day witnessing my thoughts it's not a, it's not a it's it's it may have some therapeutic effect it's some therapeutic benefit if you think of yourself okay the thoughts are separate i am separate so let me just watch the thoughts and be detached that is a that may have some therapeutic effect at a very superficial level but that is a that is not a deep spiritual practice what bhagavan is talk, talking about is not attending to anything other than ourselves it's attending to ourselves alone that's why he says what's it matter however many thoughts appear as and when each thought appears to whom does it appear that's what we need to investigate in other words we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves the one to whom everything appears So Bhagavan's teachings are all about directing our attention towards ourself alone. In other words, turning our attention back on ourself, attending to ourself alone, not to anything else. So keep asking this question and keep investigating to who this is happening. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not just a matter of asking the question. We've got to, we, we, in order to grasp what it means to attend to ourselves, we need to try to attend to ourselves. and we need to understand that our self means not any object but only the fundamental awareness i am okay okay uh, even but, the thought i am the witness is ego because bhagavan said i am this or i am that is ego what we actually are is the pure i am that is what we are seeking that is what we need to hold on to I am without any adjuncts. <laughs> we have several well, like, people, we have several people here yeah. often ask questions uh and I'm not sure if they're open to it right now or not but Leo when I see you show up with your face I know you've got a question on your mind am I right or wrong? I I said thank you. I don't have a question but I do have um just something that um that just something that comes through me that i don't know would be helpful is um this this does not this is not complicated it's it and in fact it's it's beyond any knowledge that we have it's beyond words of course a practice you know is recommended but this is so simple it's a it's really just a case of misidentification so when i identify as leah when i identify you as ted or you as michael or mukta or mickey it's misidentification these things are here it's not a commentary on are these things here yes they're here but anything that is of the finite is not what we are we are not that we are not any of this we are not any of the emotions and i think i've had the luxury of coming by this maybe in just a different way not easier because i wouldn't recommend alcoholism to anybody but but because i'm an alcoholic and in the third step we hand the self over to god and then we just show up as vessels for god who am i i am god you are god how do i treat you i turn the other cheek 
because you're God and I'm God, it just simplifies everything. Because as alcoholics, we like to complicate it with these sick brains of ours. But it, <laughs> so for the folks of us that are not alcoholic, just this is so simple. It's just misidentification. And you are what you're looking for. You're already that. Michael's just teaching us a way of seeing that. Thank you, Leah. And you are Michael. absolutely right. It is, it is the simplest of the simple. And not all of us, maybe, maybe not all of us are addicted to alcohol, but we are all addicts. We are all addicts on thinking, on attending to things other than ourselves. We are trying to break this addiction of attending to things other than ourselves. And the means to break this addiction is to attend to ourselves alone. Attending to anything other than ourselves is, is you, as soon as you've got yourself and something else, you've got complexity there. You've got two things you've got a subject and an object. But in self attentiveness, You've got you. You have got yourself alone. There's nothing other than yourself. What you are attending, the one who is attending, and the one who is attended to, and the attention itself, all are one. So it couldn't be simpler. But because our minds are so addicted to going outwards, thinking of things other than ourselves, this extremely simple practice that Bhagavan taught us seems to be so complicated. So what you say, Leah, it's absolutely true. And though you may think some of us are alcoholics, some of us are not alcoholics, we are all addicts. We all, this alcohol of thinking, this alcohol of attending to things other than ourselves, we are all completely drunk on this. And this is the addiction we need to break. The, the, the actual alcoholism is just a secondary addiction on top of this primary addiction from which we are all suffering. Don't we tend to overcomplicate things in general when we think they're the most the, important? The, the, nature of the, the very nature of the mind is complicate things. The mind thrives on complexity. In simplicity, there's no room for mind. Because in, the perfect simplicity is non-duality, oneness where there's one only without a second. That is the simplest state. And there's no room for the mind there. Let's see if anybody else has a closing comment or a question before we go. And but thank you, Leah, for that. That was a very useful comment. Yeah, Leah, thank you very much. And David from Vancouver has a question. Hello, uh, hello Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Um, last week, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, watch uh, the dialogue between yourself and Swami Savarapriyananda from the Ramakrishna order. And at the very end of that uh, dialogue between the two of you, <clears throat> um, he asked about uh, the form of Bhagavan and how we should regard the form and whether the form can reflecting on Bhagavan's uh, image can be transformative. I look, you know, I see it there when I look at you now and I see Aranachala behind you. Uh, and anyway, your response was yes, of course, it can, uh, re reflecting on Bhagavan's image on his visage can be transformative. 
and that response surprised me. I would have thought it would be the opposite somehow. I thought somehow <laughs> that if you were to ask Bhagavan, what, you know, how should we regard you? You know, can it be transformative? I think he would say no. <laughs> but so because, I wonder if you would just Bhagavan is so humble. But Bhagavan, what Bhagavan said about Aranachala applies equally to him. So if you if we attach importance to the four, that is Bhagavan is Guru. The nature of Guru, the purpose of the manifestation of Guru is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So Bhagavan will not encourage people to attach importance to his form. For example, once there was a lady who came who she was a frequent visitor to the ashram. Once when she was visiting, she saw Bhagavan was returning from the Gosala, from the cow shed, and he was with just one attendant. So she thought to herself, this is a very good opportunity. So she approached him, she uh, prostrated, and she held his ankles and put her head on his feet, uh, her forehead on his feet. And Bhagavan looked down at her with a smile and asked, what are you doing? She said, I am holding the feet of my guru. And Bhagavan said, are these the feet of your guru? This is this body your guru. This this body is perishable. If you if you cling to this body, you will be if you cling to this form, you will be disappointed. Because this, this form is going to go away one day. The feet of your guru are what are shining in your heart as I am. Cling to both feet, they alone will save you. So this is the this is the nature of Guru because the, the very why did Bhagavan appear in that form? Just for us to worship the form? No. He appeared in that form in order to turn our attention back within to find his true form, his Swarupa, which is our own Swarupa. That is Ramana Swarupa is Atma Swarupa. The true form of Bhagavan is the true form of ourselves, what we actually are. So that is the purpose of that. But so is it, does that mean it is useless to meditate on the form of Bhagavan? No. Because this form appeared for one purpose and one purpose alone, to turn our attention back to ourselves. If we meditate on that form, it has that power to turn our attention back towards ourselves. Once someone um, uh, said to Bhagavan that they were, they were telling something that had happened to them, they were in, a, in great distress. And they looked at a picture of Bhagavan, and the picture seemed to be alive, and that picture gave them so much solace. And when they told this to Bhagavan, Bhagavan said, what makes you think it is just a picture? Mm. So okay. the, the form of Bhagavan is not an ordinary form. The form of Aaron actually is not a, an ordinary form. That's why I referred, when I was answering Swami Sabha Priyananda, I referred to what Bhagavan says in verse 10 of, um, of Aranachala um, Patikam. What Bhagavan says in this verse is, um, I have seen a wonder, this magnetic hill that forcibly, that seizes or forcibly attracts the soul. Subduing the mischievous activity, that means implies the mental activity of the soul who thinks of it even once, um, pulling that soul to face towards itself, the one, making it motionless like itself, 
it accepts that sweet soul as a sacrificial offering. What a wonder this is! O oh, souls, be saved by thinking of, this, of the great Arana Hill, this killer of the soul who shines in the heart. So what is Bhagavan talking? Just take the last line. He says, this great Arana Hill, the killer of this soul who shines in the heart. So is he talking about the external form of the hill or what is shining in the heart? They are one and the same. That is, that which is shining in our heart as our own being is what is manifested externally in the form of this hill. That is why this hill has a, this, this power to forcibly attract uh, uh, jivas. And when it forcibly attracts us to it, it makes us think of it, even if we are not physically in its presence, even if from a distance we think of it, that thought of it, has a, that form has a particular power, so that when we think of it even once, it will work within our mind, subduing the activity of the mind and thereby pulling it inwards to face towards itself, the one. Here he says, pulling it to face it towards itself, the one. When he says towards itself, the one, he's not there talking about the external form. Because the external form, which so long as we're seeing the external form, there too. There's ourself as a subject, the form as the object. So, to, pulling it to face towards itself for one means pulling us inwards to face its own reality, which is our own reality. Thereby, it makes us motionless like itself. The word he uses for motionless is actula. That's the very name of our actula implies motionlessness. That, that is our real nature is just motionless. So, it makes us motionless like itself, and then it feeds upon us. It takes us as a sacrificial offering. And he said, that sweet soul. So by this process of grace, by first making us think of its outward form, thereby drawing our mind inwards to think of its real form, it thereby um, matures us, it thereby cooks us, makes us pakva. The, the, the Sanskrit word pakva means both ripe, mature, and also well-cooked. So it cooks us very well, and once we are well cooked, then it feeds upon us. In other words, it swallows us. So he ends by saying, O souls, be saved by thinking of the great Arana Hill, this killer of the soul who shines in the heart. So though initially it seems to be external as a hill, this hill has the power to draw our mind back within, to face its own reality, which is ever shining in our heart as our own being. So this is why Bhagavan was never opposed to Nama Rupa Upasana, to the worship of name and form. Particularly, though, in fact, he positively encouraged the worship of the name and form of Aranachala, knowing that it had this power to draw our attention back within. So if we could be attending to ourselves all the time, there'd be no need to meditate on the form of name or form of Bhagavan or the name and form of Varanachala. But as we all know, our mind is, keeps on going outwards. When our mind goes outwards, meditating on Bhagavan, or more important, even meditating on his form, meditating on his teachings, because that's what, why did this form appear? To give us these teachings to turn us within. So thinking the best, Bhagavan used to say, and nowadays everyone talks about satsang, satsang, but what is satsang? Bhagavan said, sat means oneself. We alone are sat. Sat means being. So the best satsanga 
is Atma Sangha. Uh, to, to have Sangha means to be associated with or be in the company of. So to associate with ourselves, in other words, to be self-attentive, that is the best satsanga of all. The next best satsanga is mental satsanga. Merely be there were many people who lived many, many years in the presence of Bhagavan. But because their minds were outgoing, of course they were all benefited, but the benefit was limited. So more important than just being in the physical presence of Bhagavan, to be thinking of Bhagavan is most efficacious. And we, the best way to think about Bhagavan, not just his form, but, but his teachings, because the primary, why did this, he appear in this form? To give us these teachings. So. Meditating on his teachings is the second to meditating on ourselves. The next best satsanga is meditating on Bhagavan and his teachings. That is the true satsanga. So, is this now a group of us are here talking about his teachings? Is this satsanga? It is satsanga to the extent to which it focuses our mind on his teachings and more important than just his teachings, what his teachings are referring to. What are all of Bhagavan's teachings pointing towards? They're pointing towards ourselves to know who am I. So, if, if to the extent to which a group, a discussion like this helps us to turn our attention back to ourselves, this is beneficial. This is satsanga. But if it's just a group of nice people who get together and uh, sing one or two songs and have a nice time together and talk a few spiritual ideas. That's good. Of course it's good. It's better than talking about worldly matters, but it's it's only of limited benefit. The real benefit is to what extent does it turn my attention back to myself? So what is the benefit of turning of meditating on the form of Bhagavan? It has that power to turn our attention back to ourselves. But if we don't try to turn our attention back to ourselves, then there's that that is Bhagavan will never force us to attend to ourselves. But by meditating on his form, he in, he kindles in our heart the love to turn within and to meditate on ourselves. Because this form, his outward form, is temporary. It appears and disappears. We we can't always be thinking of his outward form. But his real form, I am. It's ever shiny in our heart, so it's always available. David, thank you for your question for him. You got a yeah, walk. Does that make my answer the answer I gave to Swami Sabapriyananda? Does that make it any clearer? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Right, um, Michael. I was Can I just say one thing about that? I was yes. very touched by the fact that Swami Sabapriyananda asked that question. That oh, shows yeah. how much respect and love he has for Bhagavan yes. and how willing, how humble and willing he is to learn. So I was, it was very, very touching for me that he asked that question. It also clears up other questions that people have. I know I had it for a while, and your answer was just wonderful. Yeah. The, yeah. the question I used to have was, isn't that duality? If I think of Jesus, and I'm trying to awaken myself to the truth of who I am, I'm reaching outside of myself to the image of Jesus. Or it yeah. might be, you know, it might be Ramana or it might be somebody else. We we need to accept the fact so long as we rise as ego, we are in duality. 
that is where we, we're aware of ourselves as a subject and all these objects. We are trying to get away from this duality, but most of the time our mind is going outwards. Since the mind is going outwards, it's necessary for our own reality to appear outwardly in the form of Bhagavan in order to turn our attention back within. So the, the non-duality is always the truth. As Bhagavan says in Uludunapadu, even to say duality during practice, non-duality after attainment is not the truth. It, who else is one but the tenth man? Both while one is anxiously searching for the tenth man, and when one finds oneself to be the tenth man. So du non-duality is always the truth, but we now seem to be in duality. So this seeming duality is the starting point. We are traveling from this duality back to the non-duality. The non-duality is the state where there's only one, no two. So that is, what is the Advaitic meditation? What is the non-dual meditation? It is only meditation on ourselves. Meditating on anything other than ourselves is, 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 is a, there's a duality there. The non-duality is only in when we meditate on ourselves and ourselves alone. Some Sunday, I hope, some month, I hope you talk about Ribu Gita. I know we've mentioned it here before, but uh, it, it's so helpful to me. My wife and I practice, read from it every day. Ramana recommended it with a robust underscore, from what I gather, especially those 20, chapter 25 of Ribu Gita and the 45 verses that he, he suggested summarizes his views in, in wonderfully. To me, I take from it what it, it tells us what we are not, about 100 items, maybe 200 items of what we are not, which I profit from because we all come through our many years with so many false ideas. They're all false yeah. <laughs> of what we are, what we think they I are. I would say rather than Ribu Gita summarizing Bhagavan, Bhagavan has summarized not only Ribu Gita, the whole of Vedanta, Bhagavan has summarized in his works. And not only he is summarized, he's clarified. He's that is what Bhagavan has made clear in work in texts like Uludunapadu, in this verse 25 of Uludunapadu, is something that is not made clear in any of the ancient sastras, as far as I'm aware. This fundamental nature of ego.